This is KVR, Kindu Vision Radio, episode 53, Space Amoeba. Kaiju and Tokusatsu fans, and welcome to Kaiju Vision Radio, a podcast about the appreciation of Kaiju and Tokusatsu movies and discovering their historical and cultural value. I'm Brian Scherchel. Through the now over 50 episodes, Kaiju Vision has delivered on its mission to show the Kaiju fandom how much more there is to these movies and how much meaning they have. Kaiju Vision is changing the conversation in the Kaiju fandom. The issues I've tied to these episodes is the most unique and original aspect of the entire show. Every episode makes this mission more complete. And from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for listening. In this episode, I will be covering the 1970 film Space Amoeba, or Gezera Ganymes Kamebas, Battle, Giant Monsters of the South Seas, which is the literal title, or Yog, Monster from Space, which is the title of the American version. I initially thought this was an average movie, but the more I watched it, the more I liked it. And now, I love it. I found plenty to appreciate when watching it, and running it through the Kaiju Vision framework. The Kaiju are a tad underwhelming, but at least they're different, right? The related topic for this episode is Japanese colonialism in Oceania. As always, check the show notes for the times to skip to if you want to go to part 2 or 3 now. Kaiju Vision is on YouTube as well. Subscribe and see all the episodes with original videos. A short description of the film is next. It is Kaiju Vision's unique audience-focused method to arm the listeners with the facts. You're listening to KVR Kaiju Vision Radio. The Space Amoeba is a highly evolved parasitic alien cosmic entity. It can invade and control both inorganic technology as well as organic life forms. It can survive in the vacuum of space, as well as penetrate any surface, including metal. It can move around freely in the form of a small, blue, bioluminescent cloud. It can communicate in a deep, disembodied voice. It arrives on Earth after it captures and takes control of the Helios 7 probe, which had been launched from Earth to explore Jupiter. Its goal is to take over Earth. There are three creatures native to Sergio Island that the space amoeba takes control of, mutates, and turns violent. They can display bioluminescence and have freezing cold body temperatures because of their possession by the space amoeba. Gezera is a kislip cuttlefish that grows to 30 meters in height from the mutation. It can swim underwater, walk on land, shoot ink at its enemies, and can do significant damage with its tentacles that are covered with suction cups. The natives on the island believe that Gezera is a mythical monster to be feared. Ganymes is a rubble crab that grows to 20 meters in height from the mutation. Its main weapons are its very large claws. There are two of Ganymes featured in the film. Kamebas is a Matamata turtle that grows to 20 meters in height from the mutation. It has sharp claws and teeth and an extendable neck. All of the mutated monsters are controlled by the space amoeba, doing anything that they're told to. If animals capable of emitting ultrasound waves are near, the mind control goes haywire, and the monsters behave chaotically. Taro Kudo is a savvy and determined photographer. 
His goal is to unravel the mystery of the Helios 7 probe which he saw fall back to Earth. Ayako Hoshino is a forthright and understanding representative for the Asia Development Company, which has plans for building a hotel on Sergio Island. Her goal is to oversee the expedition to the island. When she asks Kudo to accompany her to the island, he goes because it's very close to where he saw the probe crash. Dr. Kiyoichi Mia is a keen and logical zoologist on the expedition who is interested in the possibility of monsters on the island. Makoto Obata is a cynical, calculating, and treacherous man who says he's studying the natives on the island. In actuality, he is a spy for a company competing with Ayako's company, and his objective is to steal their hotel plans. Saki and Riko are two Japanese-speaking natives who are more friendly with the expedition members. They wish to get married, but the invasion of the space amoeba endangers their plans. Ombo is the village elder, who is mistrustful of the Japanese because of their hotel plans and the perception that they have angered Gezera. He refers to the Japanese as devils. His motivation is to retain their settlement on the island as it is. The human and kaiju plots are separate at the beginning of the film, then become unified as the story progresses. The humans are not directly associated with the space amoeba's invasion of Earth at the beginning, and are more interested in the space probe, their careers, and the possibility of monsters on Sergio Island. However, the humans realize that the monsters are associated with an alien presence, and at that moment, the plots are unified. The space amoeba is the problem. When Gezera attacks the island, the natives use gasoline and torches to burn it, then it retreats to the ocean and dies, but the space amoeba simply moves to another creature. When the first Ganymase attacks, it is blown up by explosives from a munitions storage facility. Then the space amoeba leaves Ganymase and infects Obata, who is instructed to kill bats so they don't thwart the monsters. Ayako makes an impassioned plea to Obata to have shame and fight the space amoeba's mind control. When the space amoeba infects Kamebas and a second Ganymase, they begin to attack. However, bats fly around them, emitting ultrasound waves, which cause the monsters to become chaotic, and they fight each other. The problem is solved when Ganymase and Kamebas are fighting and fall into the volcano, and when Obata commits suicide by throwing himself into the volcano. The space amoeba is destroyed as a result. The story is simple, yet has clever references to Japanese colonialism in Oceania. It has a small group of core characters and some subplot activity. The story and screenplay were written by Ei Ogawa. This is one of the rare kaiju movies not written by Shinichi Sekizawa or Takeshi Kimura. Stylistically, the screenplay is more similar to the style of Sekizawa than Kimura. The story was originally planned for 1966 with the title Great Monster Attack, and was meant for a co-production with an American studio, likely UPA, United Productions of America. The original story was much more ambitious, had worldwide scope, and would have needed a higher budget than what Space Amoeba ended up with. Toho was facing major budgetary issues, and so the story was moved to the South Seas and scaled down dramatically. The budget of the film is unknown. Legendary special effects director Eiji Tsuburaya passed away two days after the shooting of the film began. Some of the production staff asked for a dedication to Tsuburaya, and Toho refused, possibly because of friction between the studio and Tsuburaya. Director Ishiro Honda and others were disappointed by the studio's decision. Special effects were directed by Sadamasa Nishimoto, and the chief assistant special effects director was Teruyoshi Nakano. 
The special effects are mostly still good, but rough around the edges in places, possibly due to budget cuts, time restrictions, and the absence of Tsuburaya. Special effects include back projections, superimposition, animation, matte paintings, composites, and miniatures. Akira Ikufube's soundtrack is simple, but less militaristic than many of his other compositions. The film was shot in Panavision with particularly well-executed cinematography, and has monaural sound. Executive producer Tomiyuki Tanaka was working on Expo 70 at the time and was not present for the filming. Fumio Tanaka, who is not related to Tomoyuki Tanaka, was the executive producer who participated in the filming. This is the only film where suit actor Haruo Nakajima played two kaiju, Gezera and Ganymes, while Haruyoshi Nakamura acted as Kamebus. Nakajima also played as a stunt double for Akira Kubo for the underwater scene involving Gezera. The tone of the movie is moderately light, similar to the typical classic 1960s kaiju films written by Shinichi Sekizawa. It has less humor compared to a Sekizawa movie, but it does have its funny moments. There is gravity in the film, though, and its events are mostly taken seriously. The monsters, however, are not necessarily all that scary, while at the same time not comical either. With cosmic entities infecting animals and a man, and making the animals mutate into giants, it's a fantasy film with a significant adventure component. The film is not very experimental. It is considered the last Toho kaiju movie made in the classic style. The story contains many tropes typically used during 1950s and 1960s kaiju movies. Though the movie isn't experimental, the movie does feature kaiju that have never been used before, which is refreshing. This is probably the only element of risk in the movie. Space Amoeba heavily reinforces the style of many 1950s and 1960s kaiju movies and feels like a classic kaiju film in many ways. Some of the movies reinforced include Rodan, King Kong vs. Godzilla, Godzilla vs. Mothra, Dogura the Space Monster, Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster, and Invasion of Astro Monster. Though this film was made in the 1970s, it was originally written and planned in the 1960s. The movies after this, such as Godzilla vs. Hedera, Godzilla vs. Gigan, and Godzilla vs. Megalon, would be dramatically different. Additionally, this is the last Toho Kaiju film made before the end of the studio system in Japan. Showa series kaiju movies after this would be made by Toho Izo, a subsidiary of Toho. The movie was made for kaiju and tokusatsu fans. One of the bigger selling points of the film is that it contains new monsters. This makes sense, since Destroy All Monsters and All Monsters Attack only contained one new monster total, Gabara. As the 1960s went on, the kaiju film audience went down in size due to many factors, including the advent of television, changing demographics in the kaiju fandom such as a younger audience, and competing studios releasing kaiju movies. The movie is not specifically marketed to children, but instead is meant more for a general kaiju fan audience. The film was also meant to ruminate on the relationship between the Japanese and the islander populations in Oceania 25 years after the end of the Great Pacific War. The film was released in August 1, 1970 in Japan. There are no figures for how well the film did at the box office. It is safe to say that it wasn't a huge success. It has a rating of 5.2 on that movie database, with only 857 votes at the time of the recording of this episode. The movie isn't discussed very heavily in the kaiju and tokusatsu fandom, but it isn't particularly disliked either. The film was released on August 4, 1971 in the United States, and it was distributed by American International Pictures with the title Yogg, Monster from Space. 
the original 84-minute version was cut down to 81 minutes for the American version. The executive producers at AIP were Samuel Z. Arkoff and Salvatore Bilateri. It was dubbed by Titan Productions, while the voice for the narrator during the Helios 7 launch was retained from the international dub that Toho had produced in Hong Kong. The original Japanese version of the film with English subs was shown at the Toho Theater in Honolulu in June 1972. There are no box office figures from America either, so it is unclear if the film did well. There are a few forces at play. There is a conflict between the natives of Sergio Island and the Japanese characters because of Japanese colonialism in the past, and because of the Hotel Project, which is, in a way, financial colonialism. Sergio Island used to have an imperial Japanese army garrison during the war. The nuance of this issue is demonstrated because Riko and Saki have a better relationship with the Japanese than the rest of the natives, pointing to the effects of assimilation. Obata represents the past attitudes of the Japanese towards the natives, while most of the other Japanese characters are more conciliatory and accepting of the natives. The parasitic space amoeba represents division and turmoil. Taking the symbolism a step further, the space amoeba could represent communism, specifically the insidious and parasitic expansion of Chinese communism in Vietnam, Korea, and the islands in the South China Sea. The theme of the story is that cooperation, humanity, and reconciliation win, while treachery, discord, and bitterness lose. Ridding oneself of negative emotions and deceptive intentions creates desirable outcomes. Weapons meant to be used during the Great Pacific War are used by both the natives and the Japanese against a common threat. Obata's sacrifice at the end gives him redemption. If the space amoeba is Chinese communism, the theme of the story is that the world should be vigilant of the increasing control of communist China and should present a united front against it. At the time, the United States and China were getting closer to each other diplomatically. At the end of the story, with the space amoeba vanquished, the characters are able to move forward, having gained understanding and unity. That concludes part one. You're listening to KVR Kaiju Vision Radio. Part two of the podcast is the opinion and analysis section. To begin this analysis, I like this movie, but it's not one of the show movies that I watch frequently at all. But now that's going to be changing. I first encountered this movie a couple of years ago when I was trying to get every non-Godzilla and non-Kaiju Toho film I could find. The first time I watched it, I thought, eh, okay. The second time, I appreciated it more, and once I learned about the environment this movie was made in, I wanted to appreciate it even more. And here's why. In many ways, Space Amoeba is the last of the classic Showa Kaiju movies. It is a bit more relaxed than the movies before it from the 1960s, but that's not a big surprise. The late 1960s were a tumultuous period for both the Japanese movie industry and the American movie industry too. With the baby boomer generation becoming adults, tastes and entertainment were rapidly changing. New types of movies started getting made. The Cultural Revolution, student demonstrations, and the peace movement were changing the whole world. During the late 60s, classic movies as we knew them started to die. Classic cartoons started to die. And if I had been living back then, that would have made me sad. In Japan, the golden 60s were ending. Pollution was all over the place. Just look at all monsters attack. It paints a depressing picture of Japan. As mentioned in Kaiju Vision previously, 
demographics for kaiju movies drastically changed in the mid to late 1960s. Kids became a more important demographic. The movies became cheaper and had lower budgets. Gamera movies were all over by the late 1960s. Toho lost its almost monopoly on kaiju films that it had in the early 60s. In both Japan and the United States, television was taking its toll on the movie industry too. It made people stay home and watch television instead of going out to the movie theaters. All of these factors combined spell some real issues for classic kaiju movies as we knew them in the 1960s. We all saw the writing on the wall in the mid-60s, but by 1970 when this movie was released, things had to be changed. By the time we get to 1970, Toho was putting budget pressures on these movies more than ever. Godzilla movies were getting cheaper, and so were other kaiju and science fiction movies. This was going on in the 1970s too with movies like Godzilla vs. Gigan. More stock footage was appearing, etc. Japan's economy had a recession in 1970, and Akira Kurosawa attempted suicide in 1971. Ishiro Honda said that Kurosawa should stop being such a baby. Okay, wow. Toho faced declining profits because of all the reasons that I mentioned before. Space Amoeba was a much more ambitious project when it was initially planned in 1966. I would have liked to see a movie made from the original plan. The original story featured attacks on the aliens with nukes. The global scope of this alien invasion using monsters would have been really cool. The story also featured the submersion of continents of Earth during these monster attacks. So I think it would have been very interesting. But then everything got moved to the South Seas, kind of like in the 1966 South Seas Godzilla movie, Ebera Horror of the Deep. Everything got scaled down, and then the studio rushed the filming of the movie so that the studio could save the most money possible. As a result of all of these external and internal pressures, I want to go a little easier on this movie because there's nothing the production staff could have done to change many of these things. The movie still does quite a few things right, despite all of these pressures. Another big issue was the two days after the shooting of Space Amoeba began, Eiji Tsuburaya passed away. After he had a heart event and stepped down from his position as the head of Tsuburaya Productions, which he had started in 1963. From that point until his death, Toho and Tsuburaya were in a certain amount of conflict with each other. Toho felt that his productions took some much-needed audience members away from their studio. This is probably why Toho refused to add a dedication to Tsuburaya in Space Amoeba's credits. This got a lot of people on the production staff angry because they felt, and rightly so, that Tsuburaya at least deserved that. In 1968, Toho forced Tsuburaya to change the name of his company to Tsuburaya Productions from its former name Tsuburaya Special Effects Productions, partially because Toho didn't like the competition, and because they thought he was acting like only he could do special effects. I wouldn't say that. But I know that Tsuburaya is the only one who did special effects the way people had gotten used to seeing special effects by 1970. Nobody could do it like he could. Honda had given a eulogy at Tsuburaya's funeral, and so he was upset by this decision, as were a number of others. He was supposed to do the special effects on Space Amoeba, and his absence no doubt affected the quality of the movie. It's not like those who succeeded him were horrible or anything like that, but you can tell that things went down a notch in quality temporarily. He was so integral to the tokusatsu movies Toho produced for so long that there would have to be an adjustment to the new normal once he passed away. Toho then dismantled Tsuburaya's special effects department at the studio. A change that happened right after this movie was Toho changing the way it did its business. 
Toho needed to cut costs, so they divided the studio up, and that's where Toho Izo comes from. Toho Visual is what that means, and that's why we started seeing Toho Izo at the beginning of Godzilla and other kaiju and tokusatsu movies. Toho Iega is the main Toho subsidiary. Toho got rid of nearly all of its contracted actors and took a lot of power away from the union that the actors were a part of. So that's why we ended up with so few recognizable actors in these tokusatsu movies after 1970. The same went for directors, as Toho ended its contract with Honda and the studio stopped bringing him work. So, Toho stopped a bunch of traditions that we all had gotten used to in Godzilla, Kaiju, and Tokusatsu movies. 1970 was very late for Japan to finally change because the American studio system ended in 1948. That was when the golden age of Hollywood ended. So Japanese actors after 1970 became freelancers, and only very few actors had contracts anymore. As I mentioned in the conventional wisdom-challenging King of the Monsters episode, contemporary screenplay writing software has a feature that checks for gender balance in the screenplay as you're writing it. I'm going to throw a wild guess out there that this screenplay software would be going off with all kinds of notifications regarding gender balance with the Showa-era movies, especially the Mysterians, the sausage fest known as Son of Godzilla, and Ebira Horror of the Deep. I know that most of the Showa-era movies have women in them, and that they speak, but that's not what this software counts as balance. It counts line-by-line line gender balance. Just because a woman exists and says a few lines doesn't absolve the screenplay of this issue. King of the Monsters was the first movie in the Godzilla series to have gender balance to this kind of degree. Also, King of the Monsters passed the Bechdel test, the first movie in the series to pass that. That test is about more than just having a woman speaking as well. This movie is absolutely filled with Showa kaiju and tokusatsu tropes. So we've got South Seas natives in huts worshipping a kaiju, a prominent character that's a reporter or a photographer, greedy businesses, a character who gets amnesia and trauma from a kaiju attack, an alien invasion, an alien cosmic entity, mind control by aliens, and a volcano particularly circumstances where monsters or people end up inside the volcano. Doing these movies in the show in chronological order, like with the Godzilla movies especially, Space Amoeba especially seems like a retread of many other Honda movies and Showa-era tokusatsu movies. This movie is in many ways the end of an era. Godzilla movies and other tokusatsu movies dramatically change after this. In some ways they change for the better, and in some ways not so much, arguably. I myself like most of the 1970s product, except for Godzilla vs. Megalon and maybe Terror of Mechagodzilla. Starting with the chronological run-through, the titles of this movie are great. They give me nostalgia because they remind me of the way credits were done in Ghidorah, the three-headed monster. It's just another thing done that was done so much in the 60s. The Ikafube music isn't as much of a military march in this movie as a lot of the other scores he wrote. The cues are repetitive at places in the movie, but overall it's not bad. The scores to Godzilla movies would change a lot once the 1970s got moving more. I love the piano-dominated music before the launch of the rocket carrying the space probe Helios 7. The music for the alien cosmic entity is great, very appropriate. The animation for the cosmic entity looks good, too. So right off the bat, these are similarities to Dogura the Space Monster. 
The beginning of that movie has Dogra destroying satellites, but in this, the cosmic entity is taking over and controlling technology, then animals, then a human. The mind control trope is strong with this type of alien entity. They're highly evolved and can live in a vacuum and engage in mind control. They just move from controlling one thing to the next. The satellite coming back to Earth reminded me of Star Trek The Motion Picture. A probe comes back, and it's way different than when it was originally sent away. But it's an interesting idea where you send a probe from Earth, and then you ask, what if it actually came back? Because sometimes they aren't designed to do that. Staying on the subject of cosmic entities, the English title Yogg, Monster from Space, comes from the Yogg Sothoth, a cosmic entity from H.P. Lovecraft. It's an omniscient deity that's made of a collection of malignant glowing spheres. The picture of it is really fascinating. Moving to the scene where Taro Kudo is introduced, we're shown the Pan Am plane. I recognized it as a Boeing 707 immediately. This model was probably used in other Toho movies. Pan Am started using 747s in 1970, the same year this movie was released. Nothing says aviation enthusiast nostalgia quite like Pan Am either. Taro Kudo is played by Akira Kubo, who was also in Destroy All Monsters and Invasion of Astro Monster. Here he looks different than those other two roles that he played. In Destroy All Monsters, he was more normal-looking and clean-shaven. In Invasion of Astro Monster, he had the glasses and played this nerdy character. In this, though, I like how he looks the most. I like the facial hair and the hat and the clothes that he wears. He looks more like a 70s character should look, a bit more of a relaxed look for a more relaxed time. That great piano music comes back later when he sees the probe coming back to Earth. His voiceover is good because that way we don't have to have another person next to him who he's talking to for him to explain it. He alone has to see it because in the next scene, which I really like, everyone's treating him like he's an idiot or just being sensational. These newspaper office scenes bring me back to Mothra vs. Godzilla especially. Kudo's saying it's a mystery, and that made me think of the movies in the Godzilla series like GMK and Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster, where the reporters are looking for the mystery angle. The next big scene is at the office of the developer that's planning the resort on the island. This island is called Sergio Island. It is likely named after Sergio Leone, who made all those spaghetti westerns. Once Upon a Time in the West was released in 1968, and the other most famous movies that he made were also released in the 1960s. This scene is a perfect example of how the movie has great classic-era camera work. It's planned out very well, and the camera is exactly where it's supposed to be at all times. It makes me feel all kinds of nostalgia for the 1960s kaiju movies that were done in Tohoscope. I'll take the camera work of a movie like this any day over the camera work from any of the Heisei Godzilla movies. My great aunt could have framed a shot better than in those movies, and she's dead. The camera work in this is also way better than it was in Latitude Zero. It's because there may have been different camera operators, but also Latitude Zero was done in Cinemascope, while this was done in Panavision. Tomiyuki Tanaka had said Honda didn't do Cinemascope very well, but in this, the camera work is back to the 1960s standard way of doing things. The camera is helping to tell the story. The guy in charge of this corporation has the bow tie and the suit going on. He reminds me a little bit of Mr. Tago from King Kong vs. Godzilla, but not as comedic and definitely not written by Sekizawa. He was also in Mothra vs. Godzilla as Jiro Nakamura. 
Another thing that reminded me of Mothra vs. Godzilla is this money-hungry corporation that wants to effectively invade this island with this huge development. Big grand ideas, huge amount of money. I'm reminded of John Hammond from Jurassic Park too. Spare no expense. Ayako Hoshino is played by Atsuko Takahashi, who is also in Destroy All Monsters as one of the Keylocks. I'm not quite sure which one. She's pretty good in this, and she does everything she's supposed to do character-wise. She has a pretty nice smile. If this was made today, she'd have a much larger part and many more lines. Dr. Mia enters at this time. I saw that Kenji Sahara was able to convince Yoshio Tsuchiya for them to switch parts. As a result, Tsuchiya ended up playing the part of Dr. Mia, and Kenji Sahara played the part of Makoto Obata. I'm surprised that Tsuchiya consented to this because he is usually all in on playing the character who gets mind-controlled by aliens. He did roles like this in Battle from Outer Space and Destroy All Monsters, where he played Iwamura and Dr. Otani, respectively. I suppose it's good to mix things up a little bit. The Makoto Obata character is a pretty fun part, but I think Kenji Sahara does a great job in this role. More on that later. It's good to see these famous veteran actors together one more time in a movie like this. I'm not sure if people who made and or watched this movie would realize this would be the last time anybody would do this. This scene does a lot of things. It reunites Dr. Mia and Kudo. It sets up Kudo's purpose on visiting the island. It brings in the possibility of encountering Kaiju. And it establishes the island as the place that the satellite crashes near. As I said, the camera work is really well thought out and absolutely solid. Getting to the island, the original plan was to shoot the movie on Guam, which is 1,500 miles from Tokyo. It's a long trip compared to the 180 miles it takes to get to Hachijo Island, which is where they ended up shooting. Hachijo Island is known as the Hawaii of Japan. It's a volcanic island, quite small, it looks like a nice, relaxing, and beautiful place to visit. There are not many resorts on the island. The one resort I saw was closed in 2006. It was called the Hashijo Royal Hotel and is beautiful, as well as one of the biggest hotels in Japan when it was built. It was built in 1963, seven years before this movie was filmed. It's designed in the French Baroque style. But tourists started going to further destinations after the 60s and 70s because Hawaii, Guam, and other places were more developed tourist spots. Could this hotel development in the movie allude to this hotel? Maybe, maybe not. One of the wikis I looked at said Hachijo Island is 700 miles from Tokyo, and that's not accurate at all, even if you measure in kilometers. 180 miles is not that far. There is a ferry that travels to Hachijo Island, and the island also has an airport that was used by the Imperial Japanese Navy, then converted for civilian use. The island had a secret submarine base on it during the war, too. The islanders have their own dialect of Japanese that is an endangered language. This movie was filmed in winter, and winters are mild on this island, so the actors and production people weren't too cold. They couldn't film on the Izu Peninsula on the main island of Honshu in Japan because of the cold. The island that we are shown has two main stratovolcanoes and some land connecting them. The island that they show seems to look like Hachijo Island. We'll later find out that this corporation wants to build an underwater hotel that looks incredibly expensive and complex, hence the top-secret plans. I guess if it was just a normal hotel that was big and yet on land, probably wouldn't make the industrial espionage aspect of this very interesting. 
So we get to the island, and the music from the natives starts in. Some factoid I found when researching this movie said, this music is adopted from the natives' music from King Kong vs. Godzilla. Gee, really? The discussion between these two guys about to try to do some fishing involves the natives and how superstitious they are. No fishing because the monster is out there, and whenever something happens, the monster did it. I'll talk more about the natives and colonialism in part 3. The blue glow in the water made me think of the effects used in Destroy All Monsters and Godzilla vs. Megalon. It's appropriate to use here. The coldness around the monsters is interesting. I guess the cosmic entity needs it to be cold because they're used to space, maybe? The attack has the kaiju suit as well as the animated tentacle in parts. In the aftermath, Ombo, the village chieftain, is immediately there. Ombo is played by Tetsu Nakamura, a veteran film actor at Toho. He was in Latitude Zero as Dr. Okada, which was covered in the episode right before this one. But he was in some big movies, too. Madam Butterfly, The Mysterians as Dr. Koda, The H-Man, The Human Vapor, Mothra, Atragon, and Submersion of Japan, among others. We're abruptly taken to the next scene aboard the ferry to the island. It could very well be the actual ferry that took tourists to Hachijo Island and back. It's at this time that we're introduced to the mysterious Makoto Obata, played by Kenji Sahara. The beard, the glasses, and that outfit are really something. When he reacts to their discussion of the monster attack, he says maybe he'll study the monster instead of the natives and laughs. And then we get this great three-shot of Ayako, Dr. Mia, and Taro Kudo staring at him like, what is your deal? They all start to get up and walk away from him, and the scene ends right there. I wish more movies did that, where the scene ends with someone starting to get up and get the hell away from someone. During the boat ride over, Rico is in on their discussion. Dr. Mia says, the natives like the Japanese, isn't that right? And Rico says nothing. Sort of a hint that is more complicated than that. Namely, how the Japanese PO'd Gezera. They also mention a garrison that used to be on the island during the war. In actuality, Hachijo Island had a secret submarine base. The base actually constructed suicide submarines, which I'd never heard of this type of thing until I read about it researching this movie. Yokoyama is not having any of the monster inquiries when he meets the group, and after that, we're introduced to the Mata Mata turtle, which one of them ends up being Kamebas. Gezera is technically a giant kisslip cuttlefish, the next scene is fun, with the pool in the cave getting the blue light and some of the actors being doused with the water. They needed to act like it was freezing cold water after that, though, in order to keep the consistency going. Yokoyama's freakout bridges us to the next monster scene with Gezera. When I watch this movie, it doesn't seem odd to me that the squid-slash-cuttlefish comes out of the water and walks on land. There's plenty of other weird stuff in this movie going on, so I really didn't give it a second thought. I suspend my disbelief easily enough in kaiju movies, so I thought, okay, sure, it's on land, whatever. Just having it only in the water wouldn't be as fun. I'm also impressed with the modest size of Gazara and the other kaiju in this movie. They're giant, but they're not ridiculous. It makes them more relatable, and more easy to interact with humans. If this movie was made now, Gezera would probably be 393 feet tall like Godzilla in the 2019 King of the Monsters, yet still be able to come out of nowhere and sneak up on people. I noticed Gezera's glowing eyes in the attack on the hut in this scene. Apparently the eyes stopped functioning part of the way through the movie. 
I remember seeing this movie the first time, and towards the end of the Gezeroff footage, I thought, gee, his eyes need to be more complex. Then I read that the lights in his eyes had gone dead. So I thought that's why they don't look as good later on. Good camera work in this scene too. Nice angles and quick cuts to emphasize the action. This movie is technically part of the Godzilla universe because Kameba shows up dead on the beach in Godzilla Tokyo SOS, a movie I never get tired of watching. Gezra is featured in the famous NES game Godzilla Monster of Monsters. There you have to defeat Gezra so many times in that game, and for the longest time I had no idea what movie the kaiju is from, but I actually found out once I looked into it in my late teens. Gezra is also in Godzilla Final Wars, but only for a very short time. Riko has undergone the Rodan experience, just like Kenji Sahara's character Shigeru Kawamura in that movie. Gotta traumatize him back out of it. We get some more plot 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 going on with the plans for the secret underwater hotel and the industrial espionage. This also reminds me of Jurassic Park and the Obata character reminds me of Dennis Nedry, played by Wayne Knight. See, nobody cares. Saki appears and she's concerned about Riko. She is played by Yukiko Kobayashi and kaiju fans will recognize her as Kyoko Manabe from Destroy All Monsters. She was fantastic in that movie. This part is not as demanding. They go to the native's village, and it's empty, and then suddenly we progress to a few hours later, at night, and the natives suddenly materialize. It's pretty thrown together, a little sloppy. Ombo cusses them out and calls them Japanese devils, essentially. When they go into the hut, there are some close-ups of the natives looking through gaps and holes in the walls, and it's a very nice touch. Pretty high-tech huts, too. The hut they're in looks more like a cabin. Wood floors and walls. Kudo unmasks Obata, and I like his so-what attitude. He's like, yeah, see, nobody cares. Just like Dennis Nedry. He seems to have also borrowed Takashi Shimura's white suit from the Mysterians. At the end of the scene, we're treated to another nice three-shot. This way of filming is classic and obvious in its intent, because it separates Obata from the other three, as there is distance between them story-wise and physically. I'll leave the discussion about the natives between Obata and Ayako to part three in the related topic. Obata is definitely seeing malicious plots all over the place, probably some projection on his part since he was participating in espionage himself. The underwater scene is notable because of the dolphins emitting their frequency that stops Gezera from his attack on Dr. Mia and Kudo. The actual Hachijo Island has a lot of whales, particularly humpback whales, around. It's also nice that their encounter with Gezera carries over to the scene where he attacks the natives. So instead of two separate events, it's really just one event. Obata's talking and laughing about how Gezera should be captured and put in a show if it's real, which is like the King Kong treatment. And his look of fear is great. It's fantastic, actually. He realizes Gezera is real, and both he and Ayako have these great reactions. I laughed so hard at that. Kenji Sahara did a superb job, and so did Atsuko Takahashi. That is actually one of my absolute favorite parts in the whole movie. The tentacle grabbing that one native guy is an obvious animation, but you can only do string work with the tentacle so well until it becomes impractical. When I saw Ombo start worshipping Gezera, I thought, oh, this isn't going to go well, is it? And then he gets grabbed and thrown. I figured he was going to get crushed. Like any good kaiju movie, we have to get some weapons and the natives show up with gasoline and guns really quick. 
This is one of the few kaiju movies that don't have the JSDF showing up with the customary tanks and rocket launchers. After the pyrotechnics show and the demise of Gezera, you get excited because the next monster's gotta be right around the corner. Dr. Mia, Ayako, and Kudo come upon the ammunitions depot from the 105th unit of the Imperial Japanese Army. The word butai is used for unit, and they were detached independent units that occupied islands and were left there to manage them. Obata escaping is pretty funny. He's not so skeptical anymore, and is just as afraid as Yokoyama was. The entrance of Ganymede's the rubble crab is good. None of these monsters instill much fear, do they? But it's not like this is a horror movie. Kudo shooting the eyes out is extra. The exploding eyes with the blood is great. The suit for the crab looks pretty good, actually. It has a lot of detail. This has to be one of the shortest periods of time that a kaiju has lasted in any movie ever, especially if you exclude Final Wars and the quick battles in that. Getting to the fun part, Obata getting taken over by the cosmic entity is fantastic. I love Kenji Sahara's expressions. This is when the audience had to have been like, uh-oh. So finally the aliens have smartened up and possessed a human instead of all these animals. They probably figured that stupid crab only lasted five minutes, so here we have to up the ante. The animation looks like the transporter animation in Star Trek, vaguely. The voiceover by Ichiro Murakoshi is awesome, and this had to have been an entertaining scene. I thought it was funny. I was laughing with it, not laughing at it. Shouldn't he be ice cold now, though? Eh. The makeup under his eyes is a nice touch, too. They say their aim is to conquer Earth. Like, what? One organism at a time? They're hardly an invasion force. The laugh is funny, too. I love this scene. After this, Dr. Mia makes his move and gives his theory on what's going on after the crab's exploding is confirmed. True, giantism of that magnitude is unexplainable, so space creatures is a good explanation. Being able to live in a vacuum and passing through metal is one heck of a way to evolve. I wish I could evolve to that level. Saki announcing her marriage to a man who's in a state of shock and isn't speaking is pretty funny, right? He can't say no, so she better take the opportunity now, right? In all seriousness, it's an odd time to be getting married. Should probably show him a squid and maybe he would snap out of it. He's a little out of it now and vulnerable. He looks like he's on a lot of tranquilizers. But at least there wasn't a part of that ceremony that involved him having to say, I do, or they would have not been able to do this. We get the plot point about the bats, and they move to the bat caves, and we see how they can be utilized against all these monsters. Obata torching the bats should have been shown to a certain degree, like him with a flamethrower just would have been cool to watch. That's my point. Kamebas is interesting. The suit is good, but the tongue is funny to me. It's like a squeaker blowout that's used at birthday parties. It even sounds like a squeaker blowout. Obata comes back with the purpose to kill off the remaining bats. Him laughing to himself, that made me laugh. I think if Obata had been played by Yoshio Tsuchiya, it would have been too serious, and so I prefer that Kenji Sahara got to play this part. When the other characters say that the bats will protect them, he has this deadpan expression that says, great. Sort of like people in America say great in a sarcastic, boring way. They're like, great. Then he robotically passes out and falls asleep. That's just funny, too. The superhuman strength he has makes up for the giantism I think he should have had, but that probably would have been too late 60s American. 
I also love Obata's eyebrow twitches and the stare when the voice is talking through him. The space amoeba mentions how they're highly evolved, yet being parasitic and having to live off other forms of life is generally not thought of to be highly evolved. But a xenomorph is a parasite in one of its stages, so I guess you can make the case highly evolved organisms can be parasitic. And I don't know, it's just a movie, right? Ayako's appeal to Obata seems so quaint these days, since she's asking him, do you have no shame, to someone who's possessed by mind-controlling organisms. But nowadays, most people seem to have no shame, even when they're not possessed by mind-controlling organisms. And her appeal even works with him, and it wouldn't work on normal people in the present. His struggle with the aliens creates a fair share of drama, and this prepares us for his suicide, because there's no way that he can get out of this without doing so. The choreography of the fight between Ganymes and Kamebas is about average. The turtle reminded me of Gamera, but he's very definitely not a friend of children. Gamera has thrown an enemy into a volcano before, so it reminded me of Gamera vs. Gauss. I'm really happy with the movie overall. As I said, it gets better with subsequent viewings, and considering the financial and temporal pressures on the movie, it's impressive that it was this good. That concludes part two, and I'll move on to our related topic. You're listening to KVR Kaiju Vision Radio. In part three of the podcast, I will be analyzing a topic that was either brought up in the film or was going on at the time of the film's release. The topic is Japanese colonialism in Oceania. I chose this topic because of the references in the film to the relationship between the Japanese characters and the Islander characters from Sergio Island. Although there aren't many references, the Japanese viewers definitely recognized and processed these references. To clarify, this island is in the South Seas, it's made up, and they didn't select Hachijo Island and just rename it. The island in the story, if we go by where the characters point to on the globe, is in the southeastern Pacific Ocean between 1,000 and 1,500 miles north of Easter Island, and there are no islands even close to that, besides the Galapagos Islands, but those would be too far east. I'd venture the natives of this movie are similar to the Polynesian peoples. In 1941, the research department of the Imperial Ministry of War put together a planning document at the behest of the Minister of War, Hideki Tojo. The document was called the Land Disposal Plan in the Greater East Asia Co-Prosperity Sphere. Part of this document envisioned the Japanese conquest of, well, a lot of places, including the entire Pacific Ocean, the South Seas Islands, Hawaii, Australia and New Zealand, Alaska, Yukon Territory, British Columbia and Alberta, and Washington State. If the war had been won by the Axis powers, California and Oregon would have been included. They also had their eyes on the islands in the Eastern Caribbean, like the Lesser Antilles, and also South America. Japan, in reality, never got as far as the place on the map that the characters point to in the movie, in the Eastern South Pacific. All of these areas that I just mentioned would have been directly governed by Japan, as opposed to being vassal states like Manchuria, China, Burma, and other countries in Southeast Asia. All of these areas wouldn't have been taken over at once, but gradually, as the Japanese Empire continued to expand. The west coast of the U.S. part of the plan reminded me of the man in the high castle. All of these places taken or planned to be taken by the Japanese Empire 
would have been part of this Greater East Asia co-prosperity region. To define the region and the idea, it promotes the concept of a unified people of East Asia, South Asia, and Oceania, economically and culturally, freed from the Western powers by Japan and subsequently led by Japan. It dovetails with the idea of Pan-Asianism. This whole region would be self-sufficient and have Asian values as opposed to European values. This aspect of unity was largely propaganda. One famous saying was, Asia for the Asiatics. This was propaganda because the Japanese were always at the top of the food chain, so to speak. The rest of these places outside Japan were to be subservient, and all of the non-Yamato peoples were to be subservient. They were to provide resources and products for Japan to remain at the top and stay a great power forever. Economies and peoples in these areas would be used through centralized economic control and public governments to serve Japan's interests. The co-prosperity region was actually just another name for the Japanese Empire. This last statement is what officials in the Japanese Empire said. The Yamato people would be the dominant race and Japan the dominant location and dominant military power. I've said before how Japan's biggest issue with survival is resources and energy. In the episode on Godzilla vs. Megaguirus, I picked the topic of energy in Japan and wrote extensively about that. Japan needed to conquer those areas and utilize the resources in order for Japan to continue the expansion and run the vast military machine it had built up. Oil is a key resource necessary for the Japanese Empire's survival. One reason the Japanese Empire attacked Pearl Harbor was because the U.S. put an oil embargo on Japan and that was a direct attempt to put a limit on Japan's continuing imperial expansion. They thought by eliminating the U.S. fleet in the Pacific, the U.S. wouldn't be able to stop their expansion. This ended up being a terrible mistake in retrospect. The Imperial Japanese Army underestimated the U.S. and its resolve. The Empire's lack of oil is one reason why the war went the way it did. The Japanese Empire believed that places like Manchuria and Korea were extremely critical to Japan's expansion. Manchuria was turned into an industrial powerhouse, producing steel, for example. Their view was very similar to the idea of the Monroe Doctrine, which is the idea that South America was essential to the United States' security. Japan viewed East Asia, unified under Japanese control, as essential to the development of the Japanese Empire and its security. Japan was not about to treat all of these places it colonizes as equal partners. The co-prosperity sphere was just an imperialist concept that ended up being used by the military and Japanese nationalists to build a militaristic empire headed by the Yamato race. In episode 4 on the original Godzilla King of the Monsters, I chose the topic of the Tokyo War Crimes Tribunal. I said how World War II in Europe was more of a war about what form of government to have, democracy or fascism, while in the Great Pacific War side of World War II, it was more of a race war. The Yamato race subjugating all the other Asian races. The Koreans, the Chinese, the Southeast Asians, and the Oceanic peoples. While the Japanese Empire put forth this Pan-Asianism stuff about how the Empire was liberating all of the Asian peoples from Western imperialism, they were really just taking European colonies and making them Japanese colonies. They were replacing Western imperialism with Japanese imperialism. The people who were colonized then experienced a rude awakening after the Westerners were forced out 
because typically the Japanese were much more brutal colonizers than the Westerners were. The Japanese Empire was emulating Western empires, and then going a bit further by being more violent and brutal. Imagine if the empire building game was a game at a casino of international relations. Then imagine Japan. They showed up to the game too late, they bet everything, and then they lost it all. This was partially because of a lack of resources, a lack of military planning and bad military decisions, and lower industrial potential to that of the United States. The battles of the Coral Sea, Saipan, and Midway showed that the Japanese Empire couldn't win, but they of course didn't give up for a long time. A big reason for Japan having the wrong strategy was that the wrong faction of the army created that strategy. There was another faction of the army that wanted to go to war with the Soviet Union, while the faction that won out wanted to go to China and to the areas south of Japan, like the South Seas and Southeast Asia. Next, I'll address the nature of the way Japan went about colonialism and what the empire's policies were. I'll concentrate on Oceania because Sergio Island is part of Oceania for all practical purposes. It's likely that this fictional island is a stand-in for island groups like the Carolines, the Marshall Islands, Palau, and the Marianas, which are part of Oceania. Japan took possession of these islands during and after World War I, when Germany lost and received the punishment it was dealt by the Treaty of Versailles. The colonies Germany possessed in Oceania were given to Japan and were called the South Pacific Mandate. During World War I, Germany made no effort to defend the islands because there weren't any military bases on them, no troops, etc. The interest Germany had in them was economic, so Japan was able to take some islands and port cities because of the low level of military forces there. All that existed there were small German settlements. However, once Japan took possession, the islands changed dramatically. The background to this is that Japan's population was increasing rapidly. High population growth. Hard to believe, but that's how it was back then. So when a home country has high population growth, it makes colonization easy and practical. So tens of thousands of Japanese moved to these islands, and some were Okinawans and Koreans too. Farm workers, merchants, brothel keepers, geisha houses, restaurateurs, and of course, Japanese in the military. These merchants and other business-related Japanese came from Japan to get rich through business. The natives were excluded in the fields of employment because the Japanese had first dibs, so to speak. Fishing was a big deal, too. Sugarcane, coconuts, and other foods were important. These industries primarily benefited Japan. The local population also wasn't that great of a market for Japanese exports. The local Japanese immigrants were somewhat, though. Phosphates and pearls were other resources that the Japanese needed. One problem is that these islands were very remote, so it was hard to get there, and it took fuel in order to get to them. As for education, the Japanese had their own schools for their own people. Then the Japanese set up separate, less challenging schools for the native population. Schools of this type were meant to indoctrinate native children in the religion of state Shinto, too. There was a lot of economic development, but the Japanese and the empire were the primary beneficiaries. Some native populations had matriarchies that the empire tried to replace with traditional patriarchies, but this did not work. But they tried to make the local population as Japanese as possible, promoting Japanese as the lingua franca. 
The other thing the Japanese did with the islands in Oceania was militarize them. Like the island in this movie, there were army garrisons on some of the islands, as well as naval bases, submarine bases like the one on Hachijo Island, and air force bases. The Japanese Empire's strategy was to turn these islands into unsinkable aircraft carriers in order to create a perimeter of protection for Japan to ward off invasion forces. Hmm. Now where have I heard the phrase unsinkable aircraft carriers before? I'm asking that rhetorically. The bases on these islands were support bases for various operations that the Empire undertook. Palau was used to support the Imperial invasions of the Philippines, for instance. Kwajalein Atoll was used to support the attack on Pearl Harbor. So these bases helped naval, army, and air force operations, airstrikes, amphibious invasions of other islands, etc. The long-term plans was for these islands to continue to be developed and strengthened so that they could be used to help invade many more places and used to defend mainland Japan. The island-hopping campaigns undertaken by the U.S. took out these fortresses, and the U.S. skipped over the ones that they could. The garrisons got cut off and would be unable to be reinforced. When the war was over, most of the economic development on these islands stopped too, because the empire was no more. The war had also taken its toll on the land and the people too, if battles took place there. The Japanese in these places, like the Japanese in South Korea and China, were repatriated back to the Japanese mainland at the end of the war. So the economic development that the Japanese had brought ended. A lot of the natives had been killed during battles, and some endured the brutality of the Imperial Japanese Army, just like the Okinawans had. The Battle of Saipan in 1944 was one major battle that took place. Saipan is an island in the Mariana Islands. Resupply was cut off to the garrison, so it was going to be a Japanese loss no matter what. The Japanese army used the volcanic caves to their advantage to attack American troops. Caves are depicted in this movie as well. The American troops used flamethrowers in response to take care of this. When I saw the bats all scorched inside these caves, it reminded me of what I read about this. The American troops outnumbered the Japanese troops by more than two to one. The Japanese troops, like in many other battles, told the civilians that they should fight rather than surrender, so 7,000 Japanese civilians either charged against the U.S. troops and got killed, or more likely they committed suicide. Then an additional 22,000 civilians on the island were killed. 29,000 Japanese troops were killed, pretty much the whole garrison. Emperor Showa had sent out an order encouraging the Japanese to kill themselves, promising them equal status with the troops killed in battle in the afterlife. Some of the civilians committed suicide by jumping off cliffs called Suicide Cliff and Banzai Cliff. So as you remember in this movie, Obata commits suicide, not off a cliff but into a volcano. Is this a coincidence? I don't think so. Suicide Cliff is in the mountains, and Banzai Cliff is on the shore of the northern end of the island of Saipan. The people who jumped and didn't die were rescued and given medical care by American troops and ships. In the last episode, on the movie Latitude Zero, I talked about the South China Sea and all the Chinese bases built on the reefs. I talked about the term unsinkable aircraft carriers, and the term Harry Harris Jr. made, the Great Wall of Sand. 
Those bases and China's claim on the entire South China Sea is meant to be the same kind of thing the Japanese meant to create in the islands in Oceania that it possessed. China means these bases to be the perimeter against foreign attack and invasion. There are more similarities than those, too. China has built a huge military, and their population is very high. There are over 50 million Chinese living in other countries, 9.3 million in Thailand, 6 million in Malaysia, 5 million in the U.S., 2.8 million in Indonesia, 2.5 million in Singapore, 1.7 million in Canada, 1.6 million in Myanmar, 1.3 million in the Philippines, 1.2 million in Australia, nearly a million in Japan, and so on. Most immigration of Chinese in recent times has been to Western countries. So in some ways, with its military buildup and its construction of military bases, China has caught the same bug that the Japanese had in the 20th century, empire building. The Belt and Road Initiative is another effort the Chinese have undertaken that I consider empire building. It is meant to increase trade favoring China through the building of vast road networks, rail networks, and sea routes. Japan did the same kind of development in the areas the Japanese Empire controlled, railroad networks, roads, etc., in Manchuria, Mongolia, and Korea, for instance. Continuing with the China similarities, the space amoeba could be communism, specifically Chinese communism and its expansion. In the late 1960s, the United States and China were indicating that they wanted to have more of an understanding with each other. The U.S. wanted to pry China away from its relationship with the Soviet Union and to isolate North Vietnam from China, too. Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger wanted to lessen conflict with China. These feelings were what led up to Nixon's 1972 visit to China and the opening up of trade with China. In 1969, a year before this movie was released, China and the U.S. reopened talks between ambassadors, which was a step towards the 1972 meeting. In 1971, restrictions were removed that allowed Americans to travel to China. So if the space amoeba is China and Chinese communism, that explains the mind control and space amoeba's insidious parasitic nature, how it gains control of things and people, how it literally sets humans against each other. I've heard the analogy of communist tentacles plenty of times before. Gezera has tentacles, meaning Gezera could be China with its communist tentacles reaching all over. Kamebas is a mountainous type of monster, meaning it could be Korea. Ganymes is a crab, and that's a sea creature, and that could possibly represent Vietnam. Kaiju has subtly represented countries before. Think of Godzilla Tokyo SOS. Mothra represented the United States in that, while Mechagodzilla represented Japan's autonomous military. Rodan in 1956 was arguably the Soviet Union. It has been said that Gator has some resemblance to China. The Red Bamboo Military Group from Ebira Horror of the Deep was China. So this type of thing isn't unheard of. So the space amoeba possesses Ganymes and Kamebas, meaning North Vietnam and North Korea. China had its hands in both of those wars. As I said in the episode on Latitude Zero, China was taking over islands in the South China Sea before the end of the Vietnam War. So this movie could be viewed as a Japanese repudiation of the United States getting all cozy with the Chinese communists. General MacArthur would have approved of this type of symbolism. 
He wanted to invade China and possibly wanted to even use nukes to stop the communists. In 1979, the U.S. would end up re-establishing diplomatic relations with China, completing the circle. So lastly, I want to talk about the places in the movie that make sense to mention about colonialism in relation to the Oceanic Islands, relating them to Sergio Island. Two of the natives seem a lot more friendly to the Japanese than the rest, Riko and Saki. They both speak fluent Japanese. They could have been under more influence of the Japanese, and they may have been assimilated into Japanese culture more. Regarding the hotel development on Sergio Island that the Japanese company wants to build, this references the 1960s Japanese economic miracle and the sort of second colonization that Japanese companies undertook in Oceania. All of these Japanese people finally able to leave their country starting post-1964 when the travel ban was lifted, so they wanted to travel to other places and be tourists. So this was more of a colonialism of investments and economic influence. Developments of this type didn't thrill the native populations, who remembered what it was like to live under Japanese control. The part where Obata talks about how the shaman of the natives is worried about civilization taking away his job is very revealing. Obata is the one who's pretty negative on the natives throughout this movie, and I couldn't help but notice that. It's like he represents the old imperialist attitude and arrogance that existed in the past, but also the attitudes that persisted in some Japanese to the present day. He's a swindler and a con man himself, which is also not a coincidence. Even less of a coincidence is that he's the one who dies by suicide at the end, signaling that Japan is ridding itself of this kind of attitude. He's cynical. He is against the traditions of the natives. He thinks their beliefs are a bunch of hooey, and he's proven wrong about them in the end. His world is turned upside down. The conversation between Obata and Ayako is also revealing. Obata says the natives are conniving, and maybe they're the ones who invented all these problems in the first place. He's engaging in heavy projection because he's the one who's the con man. He's the one who isn't what he seems. He's expressing old attitudes of the Japanese who are distrustful of the natives. He believes economic development will make their old ways obsolete, and he is in some ways a bit xenophobic in his attitude. On the flip side of the coin, Ayako says she likes the natives and wants to join them in prayer. Definitely she should have had more lines to say, but she does get the point across. She represents the Japanese who are more conciliatory and inclusive of the natives. There are two sides of the coin regarding the natives, too. On one side are Riko and Saki, who are more assimilated to the Japanese ways and language. But the natives in the village and Ombo, the elder, distrust the Japanese and they want to retain their unique culture. Ombo refers to the Japanese as devils. Ombo and the natives represent the post-colonial attitudes that the Oceanic peoples had, remembering the economic development but the huge number of natives who died because of the war the empire waged. So after Obata dies at the end, and the Japanese characters have gained victory, fighting together, what's left are a united group of characters who understand each other and can move forward at the end. Can you believe that I got this much deep insight out of a movie like Space Amoeba, a very underestimated movie in the fandom and otherwise? After making all of these connections, I'm utterly surprised at myself, and I'm so happy that I included this movie in the list for this season. I appreciate this movie so much more now that I've analyzed it and I've watched it a bunch of times in such a short period. 
it has become one of my favorite non-Godzilla Toho kaiju movies for sure. I've read in plenty of places how the production crew and others don't even remember much about making this movie. But this is a movie that I will never forget, simply because there is so much going on in the undercurrent. So I hope you're like me and you got a lot more out of this movie than you did before. In economics, GDP growth for Japan in 1970 was negative 1.02%, which is the first negative economic growth since measuring of GDP started being listed in 1960. This episode is dedicated to Akira Kubo. Space Amoeba is my favorite Akira Kubo performance. He looks and acts the most naturally in this. Invasion of Astro Monster and Destroy All Monsters are both incredible movies with him, and he delivers great performances in those. Everything I've seen in him looks good. I'm so glad he got to be in this last classic-era kaiju movie. Most recently, he was in The Great Buddha Arrival. He's still working, and he's done a lot of television and movie appearances over the years. He's 83 years old now, and I wanted to dedicate an episode to him, because I'm not sure when I'll have another Akira Kubo movie covered on the show. The next episode of this podcast will be 1973's The Submersion of Japan. It's maybe the reason why I decided to stay with Toho Tokusatsu in Season 2 to begin with. I love this movie so much, I cannot even begin to describe. I've watched it so many times, it's incredible. Get it, and watch it. It's one of Toho's greatest achievements from the 1970s. And I've read the book too. The book is really good. I'd like to send a shout-out to our patrons, Kyoe Toshi and Sean Stiff. Thank you for your support. I really appreciate it. If you'd like to send some feedback, I'd love to hear from you. The email address is feedback at kaijuvision.com. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Kaiju Vision Radio is available on Google Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Blueberry, TuneIn, Podcast Addict, YouTube with scenic videos, and on kaijuvision.com. I'm Brian Scherzel, and this is KVR, Kaiju Vision Radio. See you next time.